I hope everyone is, is well. Our, our fourth question in our sermon series that we have been going through this summer, we're going to cover today, and that is, how does the church grow? How does the church grow? I think that's a pretty good, pretty good question. We started off by asking, what is the church? And then we asked, who is the church? We spent three weeks answering the question, who leads the church? And this morning, we're asking the question, how does the church grow? For most who have grown up in a church, this is probably another one of those easy questions. Another one of those easy questions to, to answer. And, and that is when more people are coming to the church and more people are joining the church, then, then that means the church is growing. So what we need is we need more people. We need more butts in the seats, right? We got a couple seats here open. We got a couple seats here open. We'll fill those things up and then instantly in our minds, we'll start to think sovereign grace is growing. So joining the church, whether it's through conversion growth, sharing the gospel, people coming to Christ, joining the church, right? Transfer growth, people who move and come and join our church growth or biological growth, right? That's having children and babies, right? And they come and this is God's will. They would join the church as well as they come to know Christ, right? That, those are all ways that the church grows. And these are the answers to that particular question that we have been taught. And all of these have to deal with numbers. Numbers are good. Numbers are helpful. Numbers are biblical, right? We walked through Ezra and Nehemiah, and boy, did we deal with a lot of numbers. Numbers give us an indication, right, of growth. Shows that maybe there's some, something happening there in your midst, that there's an indication of growth. But as important as numbers are, they can also be quite misleading, they can also be deceptive, right? They can be very deceptive. Let me give you an example, and this isn't to pick on Southern Baptists, but this, I guess maybe it does. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is known as the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, and they, they, they boast over 15 million members of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's a significant amount of of people. However, according to LifeWay Research, which is the SBC's arm statistics, they take their different numbers of statistics to help pastors, help churches, and the, the convention understand what's going on. Um, they report that SBC churches are, are, by average, on any given Sunday, there are 5 million of members that attend on any given Sunday. So any given Sunday, there's only 5 million people that attend, but yet they say that there's 15 million members. You see, it's versus reality. So we want to be very careful with, with our numbers. Church growth is not merely numbers, but rather church growth is seen through Discipleship. Church growth is through discipleship. Christians grow as disciples of Jesus by learning, seeing, 
how to follow Jesus more. So when we say church growth, we are not talking about numbers, but we're talking about discipleship. We're talking about maturity of Christians through the ministry of discipleship within the church. Discipleship at its basic mental definition when one Christian helps another Christian follow Jesus. That's the most basic fundamental definition of discipleship. What is church growth? Church growth through discipleship. The maturation, the growth of a Christian by another Christian to follow Jesus more. I was taught through growing up in a Baptist church, taking classes at the Baptist College of Florida, that discipleship is more of an event than it was of maturing. It was a meet here, do this, study this, read this, go home. From Sunday school classes, discipleship training, youth group, and all kinds of other programs, these were always led by a leader or by a member. And what we passively learn through these, and what I passively learn through these, and then being taught how to lead these particular classes and programs, and the various programs that are out there that could be used, ones that seem the most, uh, the most, uh, if you, if you could. Um, the way that we've learned through these things passively is that we show up, professionals do the work, and discipleship just happens. Now, I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, because God has used mightily programs and the programs and pastors and Sunday schools and Sunday school teachers to disciple us, to disciple you, to disciple me. But discipleship isn't just an event. So it's not numbers. It's not just an event, but it's the maturing in Christ through the relationship with other Christians. Discipleship is not merely a program it is not a podcast. It is not just informational transfer. It is far deeper. It is hands-on. It is one-on-one. -on -one. And as one author says, it is life-on-life -life loving in word and deed. This morning, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 28. This, this will be our foundation text for disciples. So in Matthew chapter 28, go all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to start reading in verse 18. Should be, for many of you all, a very familiar passage that you might even have memorized, and I think that's wonderful. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy and inspired and errant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Jesus, after his resurrection and before his ascension, was what we would call the Great Commission. Jesus declares there in verse 18 that all power authority has been given to him. Well, who has given all power and authority to him? God the Father. All power and authority has been given to him. Which means everything he says now, we better really take hold, right? And what does he say? He commissions his disciples to go. He tells his disciples to go and to make more disciples of all the nations. So not just Israel, not just in Judah and Judea or Jerusalem, but to all the nations. Evangelism, as we would say that this is mainly what this passage is about, we would say that this is what evangelism is about. I say it's to us because evangelism is just the beginning it's just the beginning to make more disciples to make disciples it's the beginning of disciple making evangelism is going to the nation with the gospel proclaiming Christ and calling them to faith and to repentance evangelism go as you go as you live as you uh, as you are called Go evangelize, but in your evangelism, you are to make disciples. Disciple, make disciples. Evangelism, discipleship go hand in hand. Evangelism here in Matthew 28 is not the goal, it is not the end, but rather it is the very beginning. Because as Jesus commanded the disciples, what does he tell them that they need to do? Go baptize them go teach them go them they must they must be taught in verse 20 baptism is administered by the church in the authority of the father the son and the holy spirit we've talked about this when it comes to church membership and the importance of church membership. If you missed it, you can go back to our website and listen to it. They are baptized by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing is signifying one, a person who was not a brother or a sister, they have now become a brother and a sister. It's a mark to the church to say, hey, now this person who's Coming out of this wet, they're a disciple. And they now need to be discipled. All disciples are to be taught. They are to be taught and taught some more, as Jesus says, to do what? To observe all that I had commanded you. All that I have commanded you. Being discipled and being a disciple is a continual process of learning and being obedient. 
It never ends. It does not stop. There is not one person who comes to six months, a year, or 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years, or 40 years in their Christian life and says, I've arrived, because you haven't. That's a sign to say that you really haven't. But we continually grow in Christ. We continually need to be discipled. And this is what happens through the teaching, the leading, the guiding, the following, the discipling. So I would say that if I had to point to one text in the scripture on discipleship, I would point you right here to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And this morning, from this passage and several other passages, according to scripture, I want to share with you four principles of discipleship. And then at the end, I want to give you some basic applications of discipleship for us here at Sovereign Grace Church. First principle. The first principle is this. Christians are supposed to grow. Christians are supposed to grow. Throughout the gospel, we see Jesus calling his followers disciples, don't we? Think of all the other names that Jesus could have called. He could have called them guys. Morons. Short-minded. I'm just kidding. He could have called them seekers. He could have called them supporters. He could have called them proponents. He could have called them friends. But he doesn't. Most of the time, he calls them disciples. And the word disciples, methetes in the Greek, at its core is someone who follows a teacher, which is implying that the one who's following is learning. A disciple is a follower learning. This is what followers do. This is what the followers of Jesus are supposed to do. They are to learning isn't to be static. It's not to be static because the word disciple, again, implies that learning and growing from their teacher, Christ, is an ongoing and continuous when someone puts their faith in Christ and they become a Christian, they now become a disciple. And there is to be an ongoing expectation that we've seen throughout the New Testament that this Christian is to continually follow Christ and to learn from Jesus and to be obedient to Jesus. Because following him is always learning. It's always growing. It's continually growing in wisdom and in knowledge and love and patience and kindness and gentleness, self-control and holiness. It's what we would call growing more and more into the image of Christ. Growing in maturity, growing up, which is the point and purpose of discipleship, right? We, our lives are to have an upward trajectory of holiness, further from sin and further from the world, but yet closer and closer to holiness and Christ-likeness. I like the way Paul puts it in Colossians 1 to describe the labor that he has for the ministry for the church in Colossae. In verse 27, it says, To him God chose to make known how 
the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which Christ in you, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the gospel that is now indwelt in the church is this glorious, amazing mystery that God has chosen to use through this church to proclaim his excellency to unbelievers, right? Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggle with all his, his energy that he powerfully works within me. So here's what he's saying at the end there. All my toiling, all my struggling, all suffering, all my loss, all the energy has been all about being spent for you as Christians to be presented as mature in the day of Christ. That everyone would be mature in Christ. So what is Paul saying here? Grow up, Christians. Grow up in Christ because that's what you are meant to do. And all of this teaching, all of this training, preaching has this warning that they are to continually grow in Christ. As a disciple, you are to grow up in Christ and continually grow in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, So put away all malice and all in hypocrisy and envy and newborn infants long pure spiritual that by you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted lord is good the picture for us that we're seeing painted is that disciples that disciples need god's word they need god's word like a baby longs for milk babies can smell it they can, trust me. Six times over, I know. <laughs> they can smell it. And we, like this illustration, we are Christians who should be longing for God's word like babies who need milk. And why? Because in God's word is how we do it. It's how we grow up. That body. God's word, you may grow up, grow in grow in grace, grow in more of Christ's likeness and holiness. We need it in order to grow up into the salvation that Christ has already achieved for us. This is how we mature and grow. Second Peter chapter. 3, 17 and 18 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of people and lose not your own stability. But grow. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter is telling the church, avoid error, avoid legalism, avoid sin, but instead grow up, grow up in grace, grow up in 
knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in Him. Continually grow in Him. And we see the little doxology at the end there in verse 18. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. We grow for the glory of God. To the glory of God and to the day of eternity. Amen. In Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, there is a lack of growth that is addressed. It says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, uh-oh, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish from good from evil. So here we see the, there's, a, there's a lack of hearing God's word in such a way that it has stunted their growth in their maturity. So here in Hebrews 5, we see there is a category of immature Christians and mature Christians. And in the category of immature Christians, there's a subcategory of Christians who should be mature Christians, but yet they're still immature Christians. They think that they can eat solid food, but yet they still need to drink milk. They're still like babies. But solid food is for the mature we're continually to be maturing in Christ, growing in Christ, is always the assumption for the Christian and the church in the scriptures is to be growing in Christ. So each of us then this morning must ask ourselves this very important question. That if you are a disciple, you call yourself a follower of Christ, a Christian, are you growing in are you growing in Christ? Is there an upward trajectory of faith in your life, in holiness, in obedience, in learning that you may be more obedient to the commands of Christ? Are you more satisfied with Christ now than you ever have been? Do you give grace to others? Because you understand how much you have received grace from Christ. Have you grown knowledge of who God is still in the elementary principles? Are you still learning from him? Are you still humble to learn from him? Are you more loving, patient, forgiving, selfless, and serving? Can other people see the marks of maturity and growth in your life? Now on to the second principle. The second principle is for disciples, sin is deadly to the growth of Christians. Sin is deadly to the growth of Christians. If you do not know this already, in maturity that we just were talking about, that we must continually be pursuing, this is not an easy process. It is a long process. It's not something that happens overnight, and man, that's what we want, right? We want things just to 
Boom, 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 boom. We just want things to happen. Google it. Boom, I'm, I'm discipled. And that's just not the way it's going to happen. If you've taken discipleship at all in your life seriously, then you know that this, that this is true. And the reason why discipleship, brothers and sisters, is so hard is because sin. Sin distorts. Sin stunts growth. Sin destroys and kills maturity. Sin kills growth. It kills life. It kills vitality in a Christian. And nothing does it faster than sin. And we must be aware of this reality. And no wonder we must be aware. The Bible warns us over and over and over. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 18, he says, this I charge you, I entrust to you, excuse me, I charge, I entrust this to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. What is Paul calling Timothy to do? He's calling him to wage war against sin by killing it by the word of God in order that he would hold a good conscience. Our consciences are marred by sin. Our faith is weaker by sin. And he tells us here that the, that the outcome of the neglect of the warfare against sin to do what is that it will make wreck of our faith. Now, I don't know about you, but a shipwreck is not a good image. And a shipwreck is not the kind of image that I want someone to look at my life and say, oh yeah, that's his life. A shipwreck or a train wreck or dumpster fire or tire fire, however you put it. I don't want to be described that way. And when we neglect growing up in God's word, and when we neglect not killing sin, we are going to make a shipwreck of our faith. And that's not a passive shipwreck. That's turning directly into saying, I don't care. A shipwreck is not a good image. Paul also saw the reality of the deadliness of sin in his own life. In Romans chapter 7, he says, Did that good then bring me to death? It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh sold under sin for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do want, but I do the very thing I hate now if I do what I do not want I agree with the law that it is good so now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what, keep, is what 
I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, then no longer I who sin that dwells within me. There's a lot there, certainly. But what we see here is Paul is telling us that in Christ, sin is still waging war. And he tells us specifically, war in the flesh. That if he lives by the flesh, it is no help to him for righteousness. And sin is causing him to not to grow, not to mature. And he also recognizes that, that in this sin and living by the flesh, that he can see this, this lack of being ineffective in life, in life, ministry, in all the ways that he wants to be, and that grieves him. And so we see here a clear hatred Paul has for his very own sin. So what makes sin so dangerous is that it is deceitful to us, and we like that deceitfulness. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things, and that we are desperately sick. That tells us that our hearts and our emotions and our desires, they are not always a reliable witness to what is good. Not, they are not reliable witnesses to what is right and true and lovely and pure. What we think, what we want, we desire are not always true and good for us. And yet we are steeped in a culture that says to do the exact opposite. The scary thing is, is that we can't always see the pattern of sin in our lives. We can't even see how, how and why we are motivated to do the things that we, we do. Our hearts are deceptive and deceive us, but yet our hearts are also easily deceived. We can be tricked and we can be fooled to, to desire something that would hurt desire things that, that will stunt our growth as Christians. It's as if leaving something out uh, that's plastic all summer long, and over time, what happens to that piece of plastic? It becomes brittle. It becomes weak because the sun breaks it down. Even though you can't see it breaking down, it's being broken down little by little. That's sin. This is exposed. We become weak and brittle. Sin is a real threat. It is our to our growth in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize this? Do you take your sin seriously? Is sin eating your lunch right now? And if it has, then brothers and sisters, you have come to the right place to hear the gospel, and to pray, to ask forgiveness, and then to get help from one another, from another church member. And if you are not a Christian this morning, then sin has already ate your lunch and went home. But that's not the end of the story. Because the gospel says you can be forgiven of your sin through Jesus Christ. The principle that we have just talked about, I think, is a very important principle and cannot be neglected in our growth and in our discipleship. 
And that sin is the greatest problem to our growth in Third principle, the local church primary place where grow. We've already established that Christians are to grow. Consequences of not or, or giving into sin stunts that growth. And to be conformed to Christ is by being obedient to his word. But how do we know how to grow and how to stay away from sin? Jesus told his disciples that when he leaves, that he would Send the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8. And, and the question is, is the Holy Spirit Jesus' plan for us and how we are to grow? Is that Jesus' plan? I can't express to you the importance of the role and the gift of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian, especially for growth. In fact, there would be no disciples whatsoever if not for the role of the Holy Spirit to call us to faith and regenerate us in Christ. He's the one who gives life. He's the one that opens our eyes. He is a teacher to each believer through his word. He convicts us of sin. He draws us in. He comforts us. He points us to Christ. He glorifies Christ in our lives. He helps us. He restores us. Every believer that they are in Christ, that they are sons and not slaves. This is a very important role. And yet some would think that all they have to do is sit back and let the Holy Spirit do all the discipling. The insult Spirit has a very important role in our discipleship and our growth in Christ, but he is not the main plan. Maybe the plan for us is just to grow by reading and studying the Bible on our own. Maybe that's all we have to do is, is just open the Bible every day and read it as much as we, we can, and if we make a certain habit of that, then instantly we will become disciples. We need nothing else just me and the Bible. Again, I cannot express to you how important reading and studying the Bible is. Extremely important to the vital, the vitality, and the health of a Christian. But let me ask you this. What about those who cannot read? Now, we're read. the span of human history we are only a small fraction of people who know how to read. And we are a very small fraction of people who have unlimited resources and sources to the Bible. Multiple copies of God's Word, multiple translations, but that is not the case and has not been the case throughout most of human history. This is not the case necessarily even throughout the world. So does that mean that if a person who claims to know Christ, if they've never been able to personally read the Bible as we're able to read the Bible, that they cannot be a Christian? Or that they cannot be a disciple? They cannot grow up in Christ? Of course not. What about those who know the Bible way more than we do? What about those who know the Bible front to back? They 
all the theology. They know all the biblical theology. They know how to interpret the Bible way better than any one of us. Yet they don't even believe it themselves. They don't believe it. They deny its power. Does that make a disciple just because they know God's word? No, of course not. Now, of course, the best thing would be to teach someone how to read so that they can read. I believe it's God's grace that we know how to read for that very fact to be able to read God's word. We have been given God's word. We've been given the Holy Spirit, but is that the only plan? Looking back to Matthew 28, Jesus tells us what the plan is. Because the Great Commission is the marching orders of the church. He says, go disciple the nations. Go as you go in life. And he tells them to baptize them. That is entrance into the kingdom of God. This is the the, the mark, the sign, the symbol of, of new birth. And he has given Pass, and we have now given the passport to that person to come into the church. And to do what? To disciple them, to teach them, to make them a disciple, to become a disciple who will then make more disciples. Making disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Jesus say, going, discipling, baptism, and teaching is to happen. He says it happens through other Christians. It happens through other Christians. We grow as Christians through the ministry of other Christians in the church. The Great Commission applies to us, but the command is not to make individual converts to go do whatever they want. Our job and call here and command here is to make disciples. And those disciples are made, baptized into the local church. Church, The great work of the Great Commission is fulfilled through the work and worked out through the local church. And we see this throughout the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, another familiar text too, shows us how discipleship in the church is to play out. How it works out then. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how. Not neglecting to meet together as in a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Discipling takes place in the local church. Discipling takes place in the local church. And that's what we see here in, in Hebrews 10, 24, that the most basic one-on-one discipleship is, as he says, showing up. It's like basic, one-on-one, level one, pre-K. got to show up. And then discipleship takes place. And he says, what do we do? He says, our mindset as the church, as the people of God, as church members, is to consider to be thinking our mindsets, to consider how to stir up one another, how to encourage, how to up one another in what? To love and to good works. Well, what are these good works? The teaching to obey 
Christ. That's put into action what we are learning, what we are being taught to teach and to observe. We disciple one another in the church. Basic 101 pre-K, showing up. But then considering and stirring up one another. And why? Because Jesus is coming back. The day is drawing near. And what should be our hope? All of us who are stirring one another up. What is our hope? That each of us, not just me, but you and you and you, we are all presentable. We are all ready to see the face of our Savior when he comes back. Worked out here. That's not worked out on your own, is it? How do you consider someone else? How do you stir someone else up to love and good works? Just you in your comfy chair waiting for the Holy Spirit to do something in your life. Worked out here. Let me give you another example. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Right? So here's the warning again. That sin wants to eat our lunch and kill our discipleship, lest you are temple, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the love of Christ. What is the love of Christ? Law of Christ. To love one another. Discipleship is worked out in the local church. If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. That's worked out here. We keep watch on ourselves as we're tempted, but we bear one another's burdens. Burdens are. And we know how to bear them. Certainly, we have Christian friends. And we have Christian friends that we love. And that we, we know that we can help them in some of these ways. But the, again, the assumption here in Scripture is that this primarily is to be worked out in the church, in the body of Christ. Here's how that works. Here's how that works. In the church, as God's word is taught and as it is preached, whether it's by me or by an elder, that message, that word, goes into each and every one of you. That's why the importance and necessity, 101, that you're here, goes into every church member. And as the word of God goes out, it's not to be the little football that each one of us takes and we tuck under our arm and we walk out of here and we go home tucking the little football of God's message and we keep it to ourselves. That's not how that's supposed to work. No, God's word is proclaimed among you so that it then reverberates off of each and every one of you to another one, to another person. To your wife, your spouse, your husband, to your children, to your friend, to another brother in Christ or, or sister in, in Christ is to reverberate among you so that it changes us, so that it changes you, it changes me, and it shapes us together uh, as the body of Christ into the image of Christ, 
and we're all going in the same direction because we're all hearing the same word. We're all hearing the same word. And as it bounces off each of us, we are being shaped by God's word. Now, how does God's word then bounce off of us? We talk to each other about it. We talk to each other. We ask each other questions. Not just, man, Ben was loud today. But what did you think about being a disciple? What did you, what did you, what, what's happening in, in your life that's promoting gospel growth in your life? Tell me, tell me some evidences of grace where God is moving in, in your area of discipleship. How can I help you in areas of discipleship? See, it's working and moves around and it shapes us. And when we use God's word like this, it changes us and it changes your relationships and it causes you to love one another more. That's stirring one another up to love and good work. It's seeking others good for them, even above their above yourself. It increases a desire to be with one another. It is a desire for holier things for one another. To speak differently to one another, to exhort one another so that another member is being built up and that they are not being caught in the deceitfulness of sin. You see, the word of God shapes our relationships. It shapes our church. It builds our church. It shapes our church, and it shapes our relationship. It begins new relationships, and it changes our old relationships to make them deeper and more meaningful. But it's us together, growing together, maturing together in the gospel in the same word that is proclaimed, in the same word that is taught. Brothers and sisters, that is the heart of life-on-life relationship, loving and word and deed. That is discipleship in the church. This is what fulfills what it means to be a church member, the responsibility to help others grow in Christ as you can and as it is appropriate. Unfortunately to many, the church is just seen as a provider of spiritual goods in programs and services that are all tailored to do what you want and what you are thinking that you need. And many pastors and many staff members are more than willing to, to do that for you. And they are more than willing and they are more and they are talented enough to accommodate those needs. But brothers and sisters, that does not make disciples, that makes consumers of Christianity. We're not consumers. We're disciples, we're followers, we are learners. And as the church, we make disciples together where life promotes life. The church is given as the primary source of discipleship and growth and maturity. Parachurch ministries are fine, but they are not the church. They are not the church. And they can never do what we do. Christ died for his church. Church ministries are helpful. And where they see their place as being a gift to the church, then they can be very helpful. The fourth principle. The work of making and growing disciples is done by disciples. Sort of a building up from the last point. 
Here's what I'm saying. The work of making disciples is not just the work of the church leaders or preachers or hired professionals. Look again at Ephesians 4. We read this last week, but we're going to read a couple more verses on it. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So all of our teaching, all of our preaching, and the reverberation that takes place amongst us is to build us up in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to maturity so that you are able to do the work of the ministry. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the wave carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking truth and love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see that? That's the body of Christ growing up, learning together as a whole body, being held together, every joy that's being equipped by God's word, working properly so that the body of Christ building itself up in love. There's a lot here in this passage, but what sticks out is how crucial it is for the church to be growing in love, maturity, and being built up. And when we are not being built up, and when we're not growing up into maturity, then we are in serious danger. Weak. We always need, Sovereign Grace Church, we always need to be maturing, and we never need to be static or just coasting. Pastors and elders are given for that very reason, for the equipping of the church. We talked about pastors and elders for several weeks, so we're not going to go too far but that they grow up and that they would equip the church to do the ministry, the work of the ministry. Our goal as elders is not to do all the work of discipling and building up, but to do it with you all. The elders are not the chief disciplers in the church. They equip the church through prayer and through teaching of God's word so that you too will be able to disciple. Faithful teaching and preaching creates a culture and an environment where gospel grows in each of us so that you can build up one another and stir one another up to godliness. The elders of the church, they are members too. And so they will disciple, but every member must see their role and responsibility as a discipler of other members in the church. We would be set up for failure if the expectation was for just us three to do all the, the discipling. Practically speaking, we probably could. We probably could do most of, the, most of it, but there would be very little room for intimacy and deep relationship between you all. And if we were any bigger, it would certainly fall apart. But imagine if we all took responsibility for our for other spiritual growth and maturity. That we would all take responsibility for the growth of everyone else. I'm responsible, you're responsible, and as our covenant says, by God's grace 
through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness in all areas of life as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. To strive and to put certain attitudes and actions to death while stirring and stimulating love and good deeds through the Spirit. To love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to consider their interests in higher regard than my own. How would that look? How could that look? Could that look like discipleship? Could that look like discipleship for one another? So those are the four basic principles that I have on, on discipleship, especially in the light of the church. Now, we do not have an elaborate discipleship program that you could just be plugged into, but there are some real basic, practical ways that each of you can practice good habits to cultivate discipleship in your life and in the life of others. And let me give you a few of those. Number one, be a church member. Be a good church member and take your membership seriously. Be a church member. You cannot be discipled in many ways if you're not a church member. Be a church member. Say that you are wanting to take responsibility not just for yourself but the sake of others. And take your membership seriously. I think that's practical, number one. And number two, this is really practical. Arrive every Sunday early. And plan to stay a little bit afterwards. This is a very practical way to get to know one another. We have a small space, so you can't get out of here without talking to someone. So get used to it, right? And if you're introverted, I'm sorry. If you're extroverted, I'm apologizing to the introverts for them. Because they're going to hunt you down, right? Plan to stay a little bit longer. Talk to one another. Get to know one another. Find out ways that you could pray for we, we try to cultivate this as a church every, uh, every month. At the end of the month, we, we have our gathering meal together to just cultivate fellowship amongst the whole body at one time. We want you to fellowship so that you will stir one another up and develop deeper relationships to encourage one another. Number three, pray for other members regularly. Pray for regular members regularly. Know how to pray for them. Pray for them biblically. From the, uh, from the uh, Paul's epistles are some glorious ways of how he prays for the church. You could be praying for one another. And in those prayers, as you're praying for them, pray that God would give strategic friendships and relationships that could stand out for discipling to take place. Older men with younger men. Older women with younger women. And praise God, brothers and sisters, we are multi-generational. That is a glorious gift. And so may God use it to disciple one another as God has given us to disciple. Number four, if you're praying for other members and you're praying for them and you're praying for people to, to disciple, then plan to disciple. Make a plan. Plan your time each week 
with discipling opportunities. Sometimes you might have to include your spouse and and give them also the same opportunity to disciple. And in that plan, make the extra uh, requirement of of your budget to be able to financially uh, be able to do that. Maybe to meet for coffee or to be able to meet for lunch or whatever it may be. Make a plan. You're praying for it, so make a plan. Number five, take the initiative. Take the initiative. Invite the teachable individuals to breakfast or to lunch or to coffee or whatever it may be. Invite them to Wednesday night small group study coming up in September. Invite them to men's Bible study and women's Bible study to be a part. Number six, earnestly consider their good by getting to know them. Sometimes there's people that want to get the, the you know, they want to spend time and disciple you, but they really don't take the time and the care to get to know you. They treat you as just another number or part of the program. And that's not the case. We want to get to know one another. So get to know one another. Do better at get to know them. Ask them about their family and their parents and their spouse, their children, their, their own testimony. Ask them their testimony. Talk, ask them about their job or, 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 or whether it was education or school, if they're in school. Ask them about their walk with Christ and and what this discipleship could look like and come out of those conversations. But also be open about yourself to tell them your testimony and who you are. Number seven, pray for those who you are discipling. Pray with them. Pray with them and study the Bible together. Right? That's simple. Like, we already said what 101 is. 102 is open your Bible and study it together. Whatever that may be. Guide the relationship into good spiritual conversations and encourage them in the gospel. Because remember, that's the point. The point is to encourage them. The point is to build them up. Talk to them about the last week's sermon. Read another book together as you read the Bible together. And if you need help with any of these things, ask the elders. It's our job to equip you to do this great work. And lastly, consider each other's needs, physical and spiritual, and help them practically meet their needs as you're able and as the church is able. You see, within those those relationships that you build with one another, those needs are going to come up. As life goes, those needs will come up. And maybe you will be the one who will be able to help meet those needs, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, or maybe you know someone who can, whether they need a job or, or they need a little bit of extra gas money or whatever it may be, or they just need prayer because they're going through quite a bit right now, or school's tough, or anxiety, fear, whatever it may, may be. Or you can bring it to the church and to the elders so that we might be able to help them. You see, each and every one of these things, they're not hard. Like, this isn't very complicated. Discipling isn't very complicated. And and we don't need some complicated flow chart and organization to disciple. You just need to love someone as Christ has loved you. And as Jesus has done spiritual good to you, you do the same to them. It's going to cost you. Yeah, that may be the complicated part. And there is a sacrifice of time and maybe of money. But isn't sacrifice and cost what Jesus says discipleship is going to be? But stop considering just the cost, but consider the reward. 
Consider the reward, the blessing of walking with another brother and sister to flourish and be matured in Christ. Even at your own expense and sacrifice, the good for them is beyond blessing. It's like giving a Christmas present. And you receive great joy when you see the, the happiness on it. But this isn't just Christmas one present joy. Brothers and sisters, this is eternal joy. This is a joy of helping another Christian love Jesus more. This is the kind of selfless practice of discipleship fundamentally displays the gospel to each other and to a very watching world. Discipleship is to model Christ-like love. Jesus gave up himself. He emptied himself. He taking on the form of a servant, God taking on flesh like you and me, and willingly humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Philippians 2, 7 through 8. And he did that so that we would be reconciled to him. That we would be united with him. That we would be brought into his family. And he showed us that sacrifice so that as Philippians 2, 3 through 6 says earlier, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus showed us what it means to be a disciple, brothers and sisters. So let's be about what Jesus has not only called us to do, but what he was about doing, that we would love one another through discipling one another, and that he would receive all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your your word, and Lord, how it shepherds us and how it disciples us. Or would you teach us all how to be a good disciple, one who follows Christ, but also teach us and show us through your word how to be a good discipler. Lord, we, we, we need disciplers in our life. We need disciples. Lord, help us to understand what it means to be these things. Help us understand as a church the responsibility we have into maturing and helping one another grow up in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we thank you for the gift of your church. We pray that you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.